Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. The girls really want to bring someone home that they don't just want someone who's going to fit in. They want someone that's going to bring something new to the family law, to family legend, to the, you know, to the Garnet way of life. How would the traditions, habits and customs of your family look to the outside world? What would a stranger think if they were to take a seat at the family dinner table one evening? They'd probably think you were all mad. Am I right? It's no wonder that many people are frightened to introduce new partners to their family early on in a relationship. And the bigger the family is, the bigger the fear, and usually for good reason. Big families can be like an impenetrable clique, conversation riddled with in-jokes and confusing banter. And in debut novel The Garnet Girls, we get to be a fly on the wall of a family just like this. A flawed but big-hearted family of four. And I'm delighted to say that the book's author, Georgina Moore, is my guest today. Chapter 1. The Ordinary Husband The Garnet Girls is a novel of family secrets, betrayal and the bonds of sisterhood set on the beautiful beaches of the Isle of Wight. The family consists of Margot, the mother, and her three daughters, Rachel, Imogen and Sasha. Their father and Margot's former epic love, Richard, is now no longer spoken of. Margot rules the roost in their family home of Sand Cove, but her refusal to speak of Richard is keeping each of the Garnet girls from finding true happiness. And then there's the secret that's been unearthed, which threatens to unravel the family completely about Richard's true motives for leaving. I read the entirety of the book in one sitting while waiting for a delayed plane, and it certainly made the delay much more enjoyable. What I really loved was how Georgina dealt with writing the many different perspectives, cutting between the sisters and Margot throughout. I wondered if that was always the intention when she set out to write the book, or if it evolved during the writing process. I knew that I wanted to do a female perspective. For me, that this story, that's not to say that I won't ever try my hand at writing a male perspective. I think I will. I think probably I was a little bit shy of it on my debut. But this was def- always going to be the female version of events. Um, and as you as you know from having read it, it's a female-dominated family. It's Margot and the three girls, the three daughters. I really love the idea of shifting perspective, but it's quite hard to do. And it's very hard to do when you're just starting out. And I did do a lot of work on the Garnet Girls in the editing process. And one of the things that I was really, really honoured and, and and gifted to learn about was this idea that if you are going to have lots of voices, you, you're always having to think about the reader and how easily confused a reader can be, but also how you have to establish a voice before you can really go on to the next voice. And so that's why at the opening of the Garnet Girls, you get quite a lot of Imogen in Venice so that you sort of establish her before you move into another voice. And so I I had to do quite a lot of work on that in the editing. And then one of the other challenges about the Garnet Girls is I really, really wanted to capture that feeling of a big family where you're sort of, so that the reader is suddenly sort of dropped into the middle of this chaos of this family. And it's, you know, if you, I don't know whether you've ever had this with an ex-boyfriend or girlfriend or whoever, where you've met their family and they're picking up conversations they've been having for years. They're picking up arguments they've been having for years. They've got a shorthand way of talking to each other. There's kind of strands that you know nothing about. 
they also probably, well, with certainly with my Garnet girls, they all sound a bit the same. I have that with my sister. My dog gets sees my hears my sister and thinks it's me. I wanted to capture that, but of course, as well, they're all talking a lot on the phone as families do, as sisters do, and mothers and daughters do. And that was really hard to get them on the phone, but get their voices different. So I certainly set myself quite a big challenge uh, with all of that. But yes, I did. I love different perspectives. And I knew that I, what I wanted to write was a female perspective, lots of different viewpoints, the chaos of a family, and just try really hard to get the voices and get the characters to be fully developed. Yeah, because I think it needs the different perspectives for you to be able to pull off the chaos. I think if you'd have just stuck with Margot's POV, we'd have had you know, some chaos, quite a lot of sex and <laughs> the occasional phone calls to her daughters, but you wouldn't necessarily have had the chaos. And I wanted to, I want to stay here for a while because what you just said is exactly what it reminded me of. It reminded me of a family that is exactly like the Garnet girls. And it brought home some deeply uncomfortable memories about what it's like being mm. an outsider in that environment, because you're right, they have their own language. They have their own semaphore and way of referring to each other. Of course, they know what happened to them previously and, and you don't. And you feel like I, I often feel in this situation like it's not them welcoming you in. It's them imposing a way of living on you as an outsider. And I mm. thought you captured that brilliantly because I found myself rooting for the male partners of the three women because I've been there and it's not nice. It's really, really not nice. And I loved how you did it because the best thing about all of this is that we, the reader, get to peer behind the narrative, which mm. is actually they each think this is an absolute shit show and, <laughs> and it's going to unravel. And, and as an outsider, you can see that. But of course, the yeah. family dynamic comes together, whereas You've given us, the reader, a, a sense of going, don't worry, it's not mm. you. They think <laughs> this is crap as well. And I, I thought that was brilliant. And I don't think it would have worked had this just been from one individual perspective. No, I think that's right. And the men are in, I mean, the original title I had in mind was The Ordinary Husbands, because that's quite a big part of what The Garnet Girls is about, is that Margot was um, married to Richard and he was the great, it was a kind of epic love, you know, one of those historic legendary love affairs, but he was an alcoholic and he abandoned the family when the girls, the daughters were very little and they've sort of grown up in the trauma of an absent father and with Margot who refuses to talk about it and has never really got over it. And so into that silence of those gaps, they filled them really with their own imaginings about him. But the husbands are, or the boyfriends, you know, what Margot really wants for each of her very brilliant daughters is someone safe, someone who will look after them, someone who will nurture them, not the drunk, sexy poet that she ha had with Richard. But of course, the trouble with that is the girls don't necessarily want to follow the romantic advice of their mother, whoever does. And so the ordinary husband, so there is this sense that of the men, as you say, looking on, there's a scene in the book where they are watching them all swimming in the sea, the men, they're all lined up and they kind of know that they're spectators really in so many ways. And I think the other thing that I liked quite a bit about it was the, the way the girls really want to bring someone home, a bit like Rachel has with Gabriel, 
bring someone home that doesn't just try to fit in and doesn't just try to understand, you know, that Margot wants everyone to have had breakfast by nine and gin at always at 6.30 and these very formal dinners and there's always singing and dancing and pu- random people turn up the whole time. She doesn't, they don't just want someone who's going to fit in. They want someone that's going to bring something new to the family law, to family legend, to the, you know, to the Garnet way of life, the way Gabriel does. And the other two poor sisters are sort of struggling in the shadow of that. And there's a sense, though, that all three of the sisters, despite Margot's best intentions, have ended up with the wrong person or someone that's not necessarily right. Because even Gabriel manages to have a secret that comes out about him a bit later on. But in doing what she's done, Margot has essentially, for at least two of the daughters, pushed them towards the wrong person, somebody that's yeah. fundamentally wrong for them. One, just some kind of a, you know, a wet sock, and the other, a very, <laughs> very, very controlling, yeah. very dominating Ooh, um, yeah. male presence that's very uncomfortable to read, actually. And... People hate him so much. I can't yeah. tell you. I get, I get messages all the time about Phil and how much really? they hate Well, I think that meant it, it's interesting to me because I think actually it's on the cusp there, isn't it? I didn't want to go too far that way, but I think a lot of women do experience something similar that's on the edge of coercive and actually is... is I mean, for me, Phil is the classic that lots of people have had, which is the holiday romance you've brought home. You should never have brought them home. You know, yeah. he's really, really cool strumming a guitar with his dreadlocks by the, on the beach, but not so cool when he shaves everything off and gets into a suit and suddenly becomes a different person back home. I, I, uh, I found myself very, very conflicted with Phil mm. because I, I hated him for all the reasons I assume people who write to you tell you you yeah. should hate him because he's a nasty piece of work. But also, he is perhaps the most authentic in calling out how uncomfortable mm. this establishment and Sam Cove and the family and, and the, the way true. they do everything. He's very authentic in that moment. And I found myself siding with him, even though I hated him, because in a way, he's right. It's just, it's a really difficult thing for an outsider to get, invo- get yeah. involved in. That's and a I, class thing, isn't it? Yeah, it, I think you know, so. And there is, there is, there is a little bit about that in the Garnets, in that you know they are very privileged. Mm. They do, you know, and and it, Sasha has been, you know, running away from the island because she feels the island is a very white, privileged way of life, very uh, claustrophobic. People all going off on their yachts and sailing and stuff. So there is that element and that undercurrent running underneath everything. But I also wanted to show the other side to the privilege of inheritance, which is that is inheritance always something that you want? What happens when you inherit something you don't necessarily want then becomes a sort of noose around your neck, tying you to the past that you're maybe trying to escape from, which is what happens with Rachel, as you know, because she ends up living this life in Sankove that Margot's given to her, even though she still hasn't really moved out. And she doesn't really want that life. So I tried to show the different sides of the privilege so that people, you know, so that, I mean, you can certainly criticise the Garnets for having been privileged and so on, but you're also supposed to see that there is a darker side to that. Chapter 2, Sand Cove Let's take a step through the doors of Sand Cove, the family home as it is essentially the fifth member of this four-person female family. It is everything that Margot wants for the girls, and at times it feels the family can't exist without Sand Cove. 
But Margot's dream home isn't necessarily a dream shared among her daughters. Though its beloved, Sankove is also a brooding presence throughout the novel, keeping the family trapped, and for Rachel in particular, who desperately wants to be in London, it feels like a prison. One of the things I really wanted to explore in the book is what, what it's like to grow up with really charismatic parents in the shadow of that, in shadow of a charismatic mother and father. And they're all really victims of that in a way. And also, I think, because of what's happened to them in the past and the trauma that they went on went through and the trauma they saw Margot go through when she went, took to her bed and was really in a terrible way, there is now, because of that, they, they, they do want to please her and make her happy in a way that perhaps they wouldn't have if they hadn't all gone through that together. And so Rachel's got herself into a real mess, but it's not helped by Gabriel, who really is, you know, charmed by Margot, like so many people are, and so many men. And so he sort of takes Sandcove, and actually it's him who really wants to have that life. He wants to do so, he wants the children to have it, he wants to have beaches and horse riding, and so, you know, he sees it for the children. And it's a classic moment, isn't it, for a woman? I mean, I very much explore in this book the 30-somethings for Mm. women because all three girls, all three daughters are in their 30-somethings. And a couple of times I've said this at events and lots of 30-somethings in the audience have started to look nervous. But (laughs) basically it is a crunch time for women. It's way more interesting for women than 20s or coming of age because it's when things start to get serious, isn't it? People are putting pressure on you to have babies. Are you going to have a baby? Should you have a baby? Are you ready? Are you at the right point in your career to have a baby? Or are you going to, you know, what, all that juggle? And often you're with someone that you maybe might not shouldn't be with. You've been with so long, maybe. I know lots of people who had kind of university relationships and then suddenly in their 30s, they were like, no way, goodbye, because it's crunch time. You kind of know that the person you're going to be with is probably going to person you're going to settle down with. So the girls are all going through that. And the crunch for Rachel is really her career. She Mm. kind of wants to, like lots of women, have it all, have her lovely children, but also wants to be made partner. She can't do that in some smaller firm in the island. So she's pulled in lots of different directions, Rachel. And I don't, I think a lot of readers aren't initially that, sympathetic to Rachel but I think that they change their view as the book progresses and I really wanted to do that and I think when they see what she put up with and what what, how she held the family together aged 11 when you get the flashback to the past I think people realize then quite how strong Rachel must be yes to have held that family together while Margot was bedridden she's very dismissive initially of Sasha when it becomes clear that Sasha Mm. has been researching this family secret Mm. and clearly knows more than she has told the others. Rachel is essentially very quick to say, that's it, I'm cutting you out of my life, you're no longer part of this family. And then when she just gathers herself, reflects on the fact that, no, actually, there's something else here. But I I did get that that sense of strength from her when you see her as a young girl, because Mm. essentially... She's been mum to her two younger siblings. Mm. And we it's never really made clear as to how long this went on, but it feels like it went on for longer than it perhaps should for it mm. to have been a really, really, really fundamental part of Rachel's upbringing. So whether it was weeks or months or whatever, it, it's too long. You know, it's to too, expect, it was too long. Yeah, to expect an 11-year-old girl to, to do this. But she's very, very strong. But she does dismiss Sasha, doesn't she, when she realises that Sasha knows something that she hasn't told them. 
I think the thing is, one of my first readers was my partner, James, and he's a psychotherapist, which is great when you're writing a novel. Not so great when you're being psychotherapized for free and you don't want to be. <laughs> but um, he was my first reader. And Mark, he's the kind of man that reads The Heart of Darkness over and over again on holiday. Right. So so probably for a commercial women's fiction saga, not not your, your, your typical audience. And he read it and he was the first to read it. And uh, I got like, I think I think I got three ticks sort of scattered around, which I was desperately looking for. And he is also my harshest critic in life. But he did say at the end of it, he said, I think you've got something here with these Garnet, with this family. It feels real. And um, we then sat down together and drew out the three girls' stories and how they would be affected differently by the same trauma. And that's what really interested me. You know how you... People can go through exactly the same thing, but come out with such different ways, reactions, coping strategies. And that's what's really interesting to me about those three girls. And the thing is, Rachel's the one that knew her father best, but she's the one least interested in seeing him ever again and knowing anything about him because she remembers the ringing on the doorbell, the fights, the, you know, the endless stress of Margot's worrying about whether he was dead in a gutter somewhere in the streets of Soho, even her own worrying, even when she hated him as a child, worrying that he was sleeping it off in the garden without a coat. So you see a glimpse and, and it's different from Rachel than it, and probably the most extreme difference for them is between Rachel, the oldest and Sasha, the youngest, mm. because Sasha never really knew she was four. So for her, Sasha has decided that everything that's missing in her life is about this missing, amazing father. That's the story she's told herself. Whereas Rachel thinks that everything in good in her life is all about what she's left behind by pretending Richard never happened. Yes. So they're I, very extreme, I think. That's I, the thing. I think Sasha's desire to know more makes perfect sense, given mm. given her age. And I think that, you know, in real life, and, and in particular in this family, it's often surprising the extent to which siblings have radically different memories of the same event. Mm. And Rachel would have had an extremely different experience in those years than Sasha. Mm. Sasha, as you say, at the age of four, I mean, really... You don't really know. Don't what remember anything. Thinking, right. You don't remember a thing. No. Whereas, you know, if, if Rachel's been the one that's been feeding them and putting them to bed and making sure the door was locked mm. or even left on the latch so the dad could come back, you know, she will have grown up very differently. And, and you're right. She does work really hard to exclude everything mm. about Richard and his memory, mm. which is why I was so desperate to know what Sasha had been working on, because I was like, well, one, I'm interested, yeah. you know, I'm invested, but two, I kind of, I really, I love the jeopardy of what Rachel's going to say when this comes out, and it does explode, doesn't it? It does explode, yeah. And it, it, it was quite hard actually in terms of just the pure narrative structure of the book to have Sasha having being the person who has the secret, because I remember when my editor came along with notes on that first draft that I sent, she said, "Oh, well, you know, the thing is, you need to really give us more Sasha. Sasha's such a great character," but I was holding back because if a character's got the secret you want to be as your natural tendency as the writer is to be very enigmatic around them so you don't have those terrible passages where it says things like and Sasha didn't say the thing that she really wanted to say that you know that you, you know those passages you really don't want to do that so I, I struggled a bit with that but we got there in the end and actually Sasha turned out to be 
really I can't I, re- I can't say I have a favorite because that's too hard but she was she, I really loved where where I went with her and I, I you know I like to think that maybe one you know it's all going to work out with her and Johnny because I think they're meeting at the right point yes I, I I'm often intrigued as to and, and I won't ask you about favorites but I will, I will <laughs> come back to do you miss spending time with these women but mm. if I were to sort of reflect on this family goes through has been through trauma it's then effectively created a masquerade of a, of a life that shut out any memory of Richard and Margot just wants the best for her girls. She wants them to be happy. Yeah, she really does. Yeah. And I think if we met them again, like the following summer, where would they be? And I would like to think that they were still finding their way to fix this trauma mm. and this wound in some way, but we're, we're just not, not going overboard, not not rushing to mm. it because it, it needs time. This to heal because they've all Definitely. got to reflect on on what happened and why he did what he did and and how they've ended up. And because you go years, decades mm. without talking about something, you can't just fix this in six no. months, right? So no. they've got months, if not years, ahead of them, haven't they? I yeah, and and I really wanted to leave the reader with that impression. So I didn't sew everything up neatly in a nice little package with a bow on top because, like, for example, Imogen, you don't know what's going to happen with Imogen romantically. Yeah. And what I really wanted to show is that if the sisters start talking, really, it's I mean, you know, it's the proverbial thing that the, the talking, as you as you've just said, is better than silence, always better than silence, however hard it is that when they when they go home together as a three. I think it's called going home or coming home. They started to talk to each other properly about how they each feel. And you feel you should feel as a reader that they're finally sort of more united. And as a three, they're very strong. They're stronger than they are individually. And that they can almost take on Margot. Not that they have to battle with her, but that they can represent themselves in a strong way and make Margot see some stuff that she needs to see, which she does do. She sees that she's kept too much silence around their father and that it's let them fill it with all kinds of things that aren't true. And she's seen that she needs to be less controlling and that sometimes she can't always be the main character. So she has seen stuff, but I think you're absolutely right. I think this will you know, take time. It will take time for them. But, you know, at the end, they are all together and they've had a lesson and they're they're going to start the process of learning it. That's really how I left them. Chapter three, Be More Margot. I loved the way that Margot was written, not as an older woman sidelined, but as a woman with the same lust for life and love as she had when she was 16 years old the young rebel that dated Richard when he was 21. All too often we portray older women as mundane, as shells of their former selves. But as we learnt during our conversation with Jane Campbell, the author of Cat Brushing, that couldn't be further from the truth. Margot is incredibly authentic throughout the novel. Older, yes, and wiser, of course, but otherwise unchanged. Yeah, I really wanted to... um... As I'm sure you know, Mark, the 40 to 70 year old women are, you know, the mainstay of the publishing industry in terms of book sales. I mean, they really are. And yet very often we don't see older female protagonists depicted in any meaningful way. You know, sometimes they're sort of stuck in the corner of the kitchen, literally wearing a cardigan, knitting or whatever, being a side character. 
And it was very much my intention with Margot to have someone a bit older. Not that she's old. I mean, she's, you know, she's only she's only about to turn 60, which these days is not old at all, as we know. And she's definitely calling all the shots and loving life and having parties and having sex. And so I really, really wanted that. And I think there is a very big trend at the moment to from whether it's winning Oscars to, you know, TV drama to show older female protagonists in charge. I think people feel that they're fed up with them all being sidelined. So that was very much my intention with Margot. And yes, I mean, she says some stuff. I had a weird moment when I was writing it because I just turned 50 and in my heart and soul, I was the girls. I mean, I still, you know, I'm still close enough to my 30s and I had a great time in my 30s to remember all that stuff and to write it as if I'm in it now. But as I was writing, and I'm not one of those people who thinks about age a lot or worries about it or agonises about it. I think because I had kids quite late, so I've still got, like, I've got an 11 and 12-year-old who keep me really, like, you know, on it. But as I was writing, I thought, blimey. I'm actually now closer in age to Margot than I am the girls. And that was a real moment for me. That was a real revelation because I just, and it made me so close to Margot because it made me feel in 10 years, am I going to stop being a pain? Am I going to be stopped being the last to leave parties? Am I going to stop the one being loving life and loving a bit of drama and having a Negroni? No. Basically, my answer was no. And as someone said to me in the audience of an event, probably you'll be even worse. <laughs> oh, I, I found myself, you know, I thought a number of things about about Margot. And I think overwhelmingly I was torn between you need to get out of the way for your daughters to take center stage. Mm. And then I was like, no, actually, don't. Mm. You just do whatever. Just be happy. Be Margot. Mm, and actually, I would love to think that when I'm Margot's age, I'm still doing all the things yeah. that she's doing right now, right? Be be more Margot is my... Yeah, and actually, it's, it's, not really up, it's not really down to Margot to step aside for those girls. It's for those girls to work out what they are doing. That's really their issue. They're perfectly strong enough and beautiful enough and clever enough to find their own way without Margot. That's something they have to work out. Yeah, and a lot of people have asked me either for a sequel or a prequel, which is interesting. Quite a lot of ma- male readers have said they wanted, would love to know more about Richard Amargo, Oxford, what happened there, their early days, their honeymoon in Venice, all that stuff. So that's been really interesting, seeing people wanting more of the Garnets. Well, on that, let's talk about that, because I wanted to ask you if you missed them. And and I guess mm. it's a difficult question to answer because we're talking about them. So it's not as if they've mm. gone no. anywhere. But I spent a few hours with them. I read this, as I said, whilst waiting for a plane to take off and we were mm. delayed and I just ended up finishing it. So I, I only spent a few short hours in the company of these women. You would have been working on this for months, if not, if not years. Mm. Does it feel like it's finished and that you've moved on to something else? Or does it feel like it's just part of the ongoing relationship Mm. you have with the Garnets? Yes, that's such an interesting question. I think because I've been doing the events and PR around publication, I've been talking about them a lot. And every time I talk to someone like a, a brilliantly inquisitive reader like you, who's got lots of questions about them, it just makes me sort of think more about them really more deeply and, but there, I my editor said this, and I loved that she said it. She said for her, 
the girls are there out on the Dover in the Isle of Wight living their lives. And it feels very much because Garnet Girls is a slice of their lives that they're still there. And for me, yeah, I, I feel very close to them. And I think one of the things is that as a starting point, each one has its touchstone in me and in things that have happened to me or stages in my life. But then, and I suppose people start like that when they're writing their first novel as a way into the character, but then they very much did that thing that I always thought writers made up. You know, I've I've been a book publicist for many, many years, looked after amazing authors, Patrick Gale. I still look after Maggie O'Farrell. And I go to millions of events as their publicist and have heard them say those things that writers say at events like, you know, oh, when I go on the plot walk, the plot suddenly comes to me and you think, really? And the other one that I always say is, and then the characters just go off and do random things that I didn't know. And I would think, is that just writers saying that? But actually with the Garnets, they really did do that. They It really was a character-led uh, novel, which is what I wanted to write. So I found that quite interesting. So although they have, but they do have their touchstones in me. And so that's why forever they'll, you know, I'll feel so close to them, I think. What I find most interesting about, about all that is, I mean, one, you're absolutely right. You do, if you're not a writer, your instinct is to go, that's bullshit. I know. <laughs> but when you when you do write, the the first time you realize that your character or characters are telling you that you're making them do things they don't want is a real revelation because you go, "Oh yeah, you're right. You know, this isn't this isn't right. You wouldn't do that." And mm. and, and it's almost as if they are there with you as you write them and that can be very very disconcerting if you're not if you're not used to it but you yeah I mean I I talk to writers all of the time and you know they often say it wasn't working you know for the first three or four years of trying to write this it wasn't working and then and then my character told me what the answer was and then you know we worked it out together that is a real thing (laughs) that does happen and and these women are so differently drawn which is great because they would be i found myself when we were listening to sasha wondering what rachel was doing and vice versa you know because (laughs) i could because they're so bonded yeah they're so close they're either together at sand cove or they're on the phone yeah you know or 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 doing whatever or the the beach you know i feel like if i got on a ferry to the isle of wight they'd be there right (laughs) that's what i think yeah i think (laughs) i would i really do i think he would you know um I wrote the book in lockdown and um, it really, I wouldn't have found the time otherwise because the kind of job I have, I'm I'm now at a arts agency, Midas PR, but I did, you know, it's long, long hours when you're a book publicist, you're going around the country with authors traveling in and out of the BBC and so on. But with lockdown, like lots of people, so many elements of the job came out and I was actually looking after Maggie O'Farrell's Hamlet at the time. We had to move all her events and stuff online and I'm not very good at a bit like Margot. I'm not very good at going home early. Um, <laughs> so I suddenly had all this time, you know, and that's when I thought now or never on the Garnet. But I was also we have a houseboat in the Isle of Wight. I was also missing the island. And when we had been there, the island really does have these beautiful big old houses right on the sand, which is, you know, kind of a total dream for me as someone who loves just looking at water, whether it's the river or the sea. And I'd seen this family coming out, this sort of big chaotic family all about to go off sailing together. And it had kind of a penny had dropped because I knew I wanted to write a family saga. And then I think back here on the Thames, you know, stuck with the terrible job of online schooling, two children and 
I just was escaping. I was getting up really early for the first time in my life. I've never been an early riser getting up really early and living vicariously, I think, through these garnets in the beautiful setting. I think people have said, been nice enough to say that there's a lot of longing that you can feel in the book for the setting, for the place, for the beach, uh, and feeling that. And also, as someone else pointed out, not able to go to any parties, living vicariously through the Garnet Girls parties. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, and I was stuck at an airport trying to go somewhere sunny and I couldn't so actually it made it made my delay entirely bearable in terms of um in terms of the book I'm glad it was now and not never um because I loved spending a few short hours in the company of the Garnet Girls the Garnet Girls is an absolute triumph it is out now Georgina Moore it's been an absolute pleasure thank you thank you so much conclusion a massive thank you then to Georgina Moore for today's episode and to recap what have we learnt? It's not easy to work with multiple perspectives and you can quickly confuse your listener bouncing back and forth. So make sure you fully establish a new voice before you go on to the next. Allow your readers time to get comfortable with the personality of each character. Once you've got that nailed, if you do decide to write from multiple perspectives, make sure there's a solid reason to do so. Don't just tell the same story in a few different voices. Think about how each character may experience the same events differently, how their personalities influence their understanding of the world. And finally, remember that 40 to 70-year-old women make up a big proportion of book sales in the United Kingdom, and they want to read authentic versions of themselves, not stereotypes. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. Also, sign up to the email newsletter for updates about our exclusive live and in-person residency at the Groucho Club in London. These events, badged as inside stories, are not recorded and not repeated and are designed to put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. Goodbye for now, stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 